Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Alice Waters is a chef and a restaurateur. She believes in a meaningful life and a good sit-down lunch with an equal helping of good conversation. This week, we catch up with Alice Waters, the philosopher. We're not just eating food that is produced by the industrial food system and that may not be good for us, but we're eating the values that come along with the food. 
Also coming up, we go to Liberia to learn a recipe for a delicious rice flour banana bread. And Dan Pashman tells us about his favorite Halloween candy. But first is my interview with Chris McDade, the chef and owner of Papina in New York. In his new cookbook, The Magic of Tin Fish, Chris explains why tin fish should be part of your culinary repertoire. Chris, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I've given people lots of advice over the years about buying vegetables or buying meats, etc. I've never given people advice about how to buy sardines in a can. So there's water packed, there's oil packed, there's salt. Could you give us just a quick consumer guide before we get into specific items, how to buy or what to look for in canned fish? Yeah, so I think the first way to start is most of the time, like you said, it's either water or olive oil. So I would start with anything in olive oil first and just forget about the stuff in the water. Uh, And why is that? Well, one, oil adds flavor. And if it's coming from a good producer of tin fish, whatever that fish might be, they're going to use a high quality olive oil. And the water can kind of make it soggy, right? If like fish is sitting in water for a long time. The second thing I would think about is price. Right, if it's super cheap, it's gonna taste cheap. Uh, I'm not saying it's gotta be an $85 can of sea urchin, but like your sardine should, you know, five or six dollar range, which I think is good. Something like an anchovy, there's a huge difference. Right. And so, what? Give me a, an example. Like, what is a bad can of anchovies like versus a great can? For instance, like you have a can of rolling anchovies. Mm-hmm. You're gonna open them up. They're gonna be very thin, extremely salty. And they're going to taste like bad anchovies on a pizza. Where, for instance, if you, <laughs> if you take like a tin of Don Bacarte anchovies, and Don Bacarte anchovies, to me, are the best in the world. They're a little bit expensive. And you get them, and they're like meaty and plump. And they're not very fishy, and there's not a lot of salt hmm. to them. It's just I would never cook with them. I, we, we use them at the restaurant on just butter and anchovy on toast or like fold them into a salad or uh, anything like that. So there's some obvious things. I mean, there's like spaghetti con lasarde with sardines. There's anchovy butter, which people have heard of. Uh, But there's some things here that are quite different. Uh, Beer battered sardines with harissa. Mm -hmm. I kind of like that mixture. Uh, Grilled broccoli with anchovies, pistachios, and green goddess dressing. Um, so just talk us through some of the more interesting ways of, of using anchovies or other canned fish. Yeah, so like I said, I love anchovies. And uh, they can be delicious at their simplest, just on a piece of toast. But they're also great as like a seasoning agent, right? So there's a recipe in the book where it's basically just like a lamb roast. It gets studded with all this anchovies, garlic, and rosemary. And as it cooks, the anchovies basically melt into the meat. So it becomes more right. of a mm. flavoring agent as opposed to, you know, it's not like you would call it anchovy lamb. It's just, it's part of that umami, that secret. And let's talk about the notion of anchovies, you know, providing umami. That is a foundation flavor. It's not necessarily about the fish. It's just about foundation. So, so do you view anchovies that way as well? Yeah, for sure. So we like to use them a lot as these little umami bombs or like a back pocket secret that chefs use that guests never know are in there. You know, it's like they don't know why something tastes as good as it does, but they also don't know they're eating anchovies. 
like people don't understand like anchovies are in some of their favorite sauces right it's like caesar's an obvious one but even like worcestershire and steak sauces and you know you're you're putting a7 on your your steak you're you're eating anchovies then you you get onto mackerel and you say it's richer and milder in taste than tuna so for the rest of us who have no experience with canned mackerel uh sell me on it i would almost guarantee that if i blind tasted you on a tin of tuna and a tin of mackerel you'd be hard pressed to tell the difference Hmm. but it's no secret that the tuna stock has just been overfished to the point where it's really struggling around the world you know it's like there are some right like you have the small skipjacks and the albacores that run up and down the east coast uh that you know people catch in a sustainable way but in most of the world the tuna stock is is just is rapidly decreasing where these small fish like mackerel or herring or sardines are almost like the rabbits of the sea right it's like they come back so quickly, their population regenerates so quickly, where you take a big, something like tuna, and it takes a long time to get it back to where it needs to be for us to eat. You know, when I was young, a lot of canned food was gourmet food, right? I mean, gourmet food was more canned than fresh, like canned, you know, white asparagus, for example. Uh, but at some point, I guess canned food got a bad name. Is that over now? I mean, we, we've gone through the Canned food was expensive and wonderful, then canned food was not, and now canned tin fish is, is, is going back up again. Is, is that what's happening? Yeah, I mean, I think tin fish is definitely at like the height of its popularity. I do think when people from Europe first started immigrating to the United States, they saw America and like success as like eating steak, steak and potatoes, large chunks of meat, uh, which obviously costed money. And so where they may have in their cultures eaten tin fish and it was completely normal and, you know, just something you did every day, I think once they came to America, it seemed cheap, poor, and that's not what they came here for. And that's not what they wanted to be. So I think it basically it, they just everybody just put it on the back burner. So then all you got was canned tuna, salmon, chicken of the sea, sun-kissed, and now you're seeing a resurgence. Like if you look at your Instagram feed, there's people posting tin seafood all over the place. But I think people care more now about where their food comes from than ever. I think they are concerned with global fish stock and just sustainability in general. So tin seafood's like one of the most sustainable things you can eat. It's healthy and it's delicious. So I think for those reasons, it's maybe it's a trend now, but I think it's going to be here to stay. Chris, all the best with your restaurant, Pupina, and your book. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. That was Chris McDay, the chef and owner of Pupina in New York. His new cookbook is The Magic of Tin Fish. Elevate your cooking with canned anchovies, sardines, mackerel, crab, and other amazing seafood. Now it's time for my co-host, Sarah Moult and I, to answer some of your cooking questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101. She also stars in Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. So, Chris, I have a theory recently, because I keep coming across this, that people who are in one area of the arts oftentimes cross over and do something else in the arts. So, for example... Jacques Pepin does the most amazing paintings of mostly chickens, roosters. 
I myself have taken up watercolors, and I'm not bad. I'm not saying I'm a genius, but I'm pretty good. In the past, I always noticed that chefs ended up being in bands and playing instruments and music. And my mom was a writer and a painter and an amazing cook. What do you think about that? If you're sort of creative as a cook, that it sort of translates into other areas. We'll find out that Jacques Pepin has been depressed all his life because he really wanted to be a painter. (laughs) I mean, for me, it's music because I've played music all my life. and See, there you go. I've had a couple bands, et cetera. Okay. But, you know, every cook wants to be a rock and roll star and every rock and roll, well, maybe that's not true. No, Mick, no. Does Mick Jagger really want to be the head chef? No, the but I do think that when An- Anthony Bourdain came out with that book, I know for a fact the guy who played drums in Mink DeVille went to cooking school to become a chef because he read Anthony Bourdain's well, book. Well, Jamie Oliver, when I interviewed him a while back, I did some research. He's a drummer. Yeah. And he had a band. And so you're supporting really my theory here. I'm supporting your theory. But I think the question is, why are we desperate or love doing something else in the arts? I guess we're not fulfilled with what we do. Or no. maybe we just have excess artistic energy. We've got the art gene. We're uh, hardwired art. That's what I think. Okay. That's a good theory. Let's take us some calls. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, it's Sally Tucker. Hi, Sally. Where are you calling from? Calling from Batesville, Virginia. How can we help you today? I had a question about goat cheese cheesecake that I made that curdled. I have made this recipe many times before and never had the problem. And I used all the same ingredients, but the only thing that was new was I used a local chef that had vegetable rennet in it. And I'm assuming that the other goat cheeses that I bought in the grocery stores had had regular rennet. And when I mixed everything together, it curdled and it gave me a consistency of sort of water. Wow. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you make the recipe? The filling has goat cheese, cream cheese, buttermilk, sugar, eggs, lemon, lemon zest, and I also add red currants to it. It's sort of sweet with a little bit of savory in there. Yeah, and it has a togarashi spice over the top of it. Very Ooh, nice. That sounds yeah, good. I knew that would get with a Chris excited. Ginger snap crust. Ooh, oh, I like yeah, this. Yeah, now you're talking. I have to admit, I am completely stumped. I don't think it's the rennet. I'm not even sure what vegetable rennet is. I guess you could make it from some sort of vegetable instead of a stomach lining, but it may be it just doesn't hold together as well under heat. I don't know the answer. Actually. There's no cooking here? No. Well, mixing up, it curdled. And so Um, my answer to that is I threw it in the the, um, blender and blended the heck out of it. And it was like water consistency. And I figured I spent all this money on this fancy cheese. And I just went ahead and cooked it. And it actually turned out normally. So, I mean, I don't have a complaint about the recipe. But I just had this weird experience of this curdled consistency to the batter. You know, before answering questions, it's always helpful to ask questions. So, okay, <laughs> you're mixing it in a stand mixer, right, with a paddle. And yeah. it looks like you're making a pound cake batter that starts to look curdled. Yeah, yeah well, that's yeah. that can happen because, I think I know the answer, the ingredients are too cold. So when you do a pound yeah. cake, for example, it, was everything at room temperature when you started this? It definitely was, yes. Ugh. I was so close. (laughs) Except for the buttermilk. Except for the buttermilk. Oh, okay. Well, okay. Okay. There you go. My senses with cheesecake 
and with other similar things. Room temperature is really important. But as you said, and I've done this with pound cake, many times I've made it and I didn't take the eggs out in time or whatever. It looks curdled and you bake mm-hmm. it and it comes out fine. Well, also the other thing so, is you said you transferred it to the blender. Mm-hmm. Essentially, you really beat the bejesus out of it is what you did. But it didn't yeah. look better yeah. in the blender, did it? Did it look better? It did not look curdled, but that strange consistency that was really thin yeah. was still there. Hmm. But it no longer looked curdled. Huh. I think it's all about temperature. It's the buttermilk, and you're right. It can look curdled, but you throw it in the oven, it's fine. So yeah. I don't think yeah. it has anything to do with the rennet and the... I don't either. Just try it with the buttermilk at room temperature yeah. next time. Try that. I think that's... And I it sounds like you had a happy ending anyway. We should have started there. Yeah. <laughs> but good for you. <laughs> anyway, thanks for calling. Yes, thanks, Sally. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a kitchen mystery, put me and Sarah on the case. Just give us a ring anytime. Our number is 855-426-9843. One more time. 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Mike Akeel in Davenport, Iowa. How can we help you? I have a question about roasting sweet potatoes. I roast a lot of vegetables. My family loves them, but sweet potatoes have proved to be a special challenge. They often burn before they're cooked kind of the way I want them. The other issue I have is they seem super absorbent. I put some oil on them. When I go to stir them in the pan in the oven, the pan is bone dry. They seem to react kind of like an eggplant. When I cook eggplant, it it just absorbs the oil like a sponge. And so... I don't know if you've got any ideas or tips. How are you prepping them? You're cutting them into chunks? You know, I usually cut them maybe half-inch squares. You know, it's hard to cut a sweet potato perfectly square. And then usually a little salt and pepper. I'll blend often maybe vegetable oil with olive oil, salt and pepper. I've tried different temperatures, you know, anywhere from 350 to 425 and just um, haven't quite unlocked it yet. It sounds like your prep's fine. I might use slightly like one-inch pieces, not half-inch pieces. A little bit bigger. Okay. Yeah, a little bit bigger. You can toss it with oil and salt, pepper, whatever. 425 for a while, like half an hour. You know, baking sheet, you might use parchment paper under it. And then crank the oven. Toss it and then crank it to 500. I think the problem is you don't have enough heat. If you're dealing okay. with 350 okay. to 425, you should be dealing 425 to 500. And you're right, that'll help drive out some of the moisture and it'll solve that problem of being soggy. So 30 minutes at 425 and then another 500 degrees for 10, 15 minutes, whatever, until it's ready. Okay. I do it all the time. The outside should be dry and the inside should be very creamy and soft. And there's no need to preheat the cookie sheet, is there? You know, I don't think so. Uh, For example, oven fries, we do that for oven fries because you want that really crisp exterior. I don't think you need to do that here now. You could try it. I don't think it's necessary. Sarah? Kenji Lopez-Alt, you know, who is somebody who's been on this show and is very good at the science, Mm -hmm. and he said to get that really sweet flavor out of sweet potatoes, it's a good idea to cook them first. Well, sort of cook them. Get the water hot, you know, like a sous vide situation, but it doesn't have to be sous vide. Get it to like 150, 160, put the potatoes cut into wedges in it, cover it, leave it for about an hour, and that will bring up the temperature, then drain them, pat them dry, and then roast them in a hot oven. And that did bring out the nice 
sugar and sort of give it a nice caramelization. So that's a thought. That didn't add too much moisture when you're trying to brown them up? No, actually, it didn't. Okay. Huh. I patted them dry, yeah. I have a recipe from uh, Otto Lange where he puts a little cornmeal on them. Ah. That adds a nice crunch, but it didn't solve the kind of core problem of, of how they cook. Yeah. Yeah. But I'll, I'll try the higher temp. Yeah, it's the higher temp would really help. Yeah, yeah. I think so, too. Yeah. All right. All Excellent. Right. Thank you so much for your help. Take care. Bye. Bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, I'm chatting with Alice Waters, owner of Chez Panisse. That's right up after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. (laughs) Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. 
A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavor of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Alice Waters. Alice, uh, welcome back to Milk Street. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here. You're celebrating your 50th anniversary at Chez Panisse. You know, I I was doing a little homework, and I gather that one of your favorite films is César from the 1930s, and there was a character in it who actually dies off fairly quickly in the movie Honoré Panisse, Uh, and I think his wife was Fanny Panisse as well, so... I guess that's where the name came from, is that right? That is where the name came from. You know, it's an interesting movie because I I know why you love it, I think, because a lot of people spend a lot of time around tables having conversations (laughs) with a sense of humor, and some of them fairly serious conversations, and there's a lot of enjoyment of the details of life. You know, when Panisse is at the beginning of the movie dying in bed, he talks about what he's going to miss, you know, shaving by the open window in the morning, the corn on his foot, which tells him if the weather's going to change. Uh, he even laments, you know, the hairs on his chest he will miss because he will not be around. Are those things, you know, the details of life, sitting around a table, having conversation, those just seems like that's such a part of what Shea Panisse is, is really all about. Well, it, it is. Not quite in that specific way, <laughs> but but in paying attention to, to everything that's on your plate, but n- not just the food, actually. It's the feeling of the room, and you want it to reflect the values that you cherish, and so you want it to be about seasonality and so you have big branches of fall leaves turning color in September and you you want it to smell good always you want it to be awakening your senses that's very important to me and that is what gets you to pay attention to everything you're doing all the little things that are in that film. Well, you, you also said beauty and meaning are human values. 
and we have taken these away from the public. How have we taken them away? What, what's happened? Well, I've just written a manifesto about this, and it's called We Are What We Eat. And I thought about that wonderful quote from Briat Savarin, the philosopher in France, who said, the destiny of nations depends on how they nourish themselves. And so I thought about that, that big change that has happened in the last 60, 70 years, when we've gone from slow food to fast food. And I realized that we're not just eating food that is produced by the industrial food system and that may not be good for us, but we're eating the values that come along with the food and the values that have changed the world, really. Like uniformity, everything should be the same. That more is better. That time is money. That it's okay to eat in your car. (laughs) That food should be fast, cheap, and easy. The idea that cooking and farming are drudgery. Imagine that. Do you think that... um I mean, how did this happen is my question. Do you think, <laughs> well, well, I mean, do, do you think that humans, for some reason, this is just deeply appealing to us, that is fast food and lack of beauty on some level? Or do you think it, it got sold to us by a really smart <laughs> group of people <laughs> on Madison Avenue? Uh, I think the latter. <laughs> the <laughs> industrial food system understood the power of advertising. During World War II, you know, we were very effective in persuading people to help with the war effort. Just think of those victory gardens that we got going and and thinking about all the recycling we did, saving things so that they could go to feed hungry troops or that they could be part of the building of, of the <laughs> munitions or whatever they were doing. But they were very effective in convincing us at that time. Yeah, we, we were talking a few weeks ago about, um, because I think the, the question is, how does one lead an intentional life? That's a loaded phrase, but... Mm-hmm. It, and I asked you that question, and the and the example you gave me was striking. I've been thinking about it every day since. You said one of the things that was really critical for you early on was to have lunch at a table, you know, with good food and conversation. And that was critical for your happiness in your life, and you designed a life around that, among other things. Other people would say they want to be a astronaut or, you know, investment banker or whatever. But you, but you want to have lunch at a table. Could you describe how one lives an intentional life and what kinds of things are on your list of, of critical aspects to be happy? 
I feel like these ideas are available to everyone. We have been told that money is most important. Now, if you make money, number one, then nine out of ten times, you are sacrificing something that could be very meaningful to you. You're ready to work in this circumstance because you can make more money, and if they don't have a place to sit for lunch, well, so be it. And if there are no windows in that factory, there's no air in it, I mean, it's, it's something that's unacceptable to me. I want to have time to sit down and eat with the people I work with, to see who they are, to see how we can communicate with each other, how we can work collaboratively. But I've never wanted a career. I've wanted something that I like to do. And in fact, I believe that that's the real problem of our education system, is that we're training people to be part of this corporate world and thinking, that we aren't training people to see the potential and and the beauty of the world around us. Uh, there's a sign, a uh, photograph on your Instagram account that says, we will not go back to normal. I, I assume this is post-COVID. We will not go back to normal. Normal never was. <laughs> um, what is normal? Well, for me, it really is about simplicity. It's about community, for sure. It's about supporting the people who take care of the land for the future. And it's really about that right now. It's about climate. This is something so, so serious, and everyone is so frightened by it. And here we have a solution that's desirable, (laughs) in fact, delicious, and something that we can all do. We can all plant a seed. We can all compost our scraps from our meal. Even if we don't have a place in a, a backyard, we can take our scraps to the farmer's market. You're someone who believes that anything can be done. You, you have this quote from uh, Amelia Earhart which I love, never interrupt someone doing something that you said couldn't be done, <laughs> which I love. It's my favorite quotes now. Um, I mean, you're, you're like one of these people who runs around trying to do something that a lot of people say can't be done. So I guess we shouldn't interrupt you. But um, Please don't. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, please don't. Um, is that because you have faith in human nature or you just are an incurable optimist? You have faith. there's faith here somewhere, right? There yeah. is. It's definitely. I I do believe it's deeply in our genes uh, because we are part of nature, and 
I feel like when you fall in love with nature, you are deeply rewarded. You you have a sense that, you know, she's really your mother. And it gives meaning to your life. But I also believe that having an example, having a model of an idea is so, so important right now. I remember when Jimmy Carter started Habitat for Humanity. And I was part of the rebuilding of a school in San Francisco. And in one day, we painted the school inside and out and planted a garden all around the school. And when I go by the school, I say, oh my God, I helped to make that happen. And this is what has been missing in all of our lives, I really believe. We haven't felt empowered. We have been told, you can't do this, you can't do that. It's too dangerous. Don't. And when in fact, we can. (laughs) Alice, it has been, as always, a great pleasure. And uh, congratulations on the 50th anniversary of Chez Thank you so much, Chris. That was Alice Waters, owner of Chez Panisse. Honoré Panisse, the namesake of Alice's world-famous restaurant, is a character from César, the last movie in Peniel's trilogy about life in Marseille back in the 1930s. On his deathbed, Panisse talks about what he's going to miss, including a corn on his foot, the hairs on his chest, and shaving by an open window with a view of the harbor. He then confesses to his priest with a long litany of sins, each of which he remembers with great gusto. So what one realizes about the movie is that it's all about the conversation, the everyday back and forth, the joys and disappointments that constitute life. Alice Waters realized early on that these conversations, best had around the lunch or dinner table, are worth living for, even worth designing a life around. And to her great credit, that is exactly what she did. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. It's time to chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, Liberian banana bread. J.M., how are you? I am great. So we're going to talk banana bread. I would think everyone in America has made a loaf a week for the last 18 months, right? I mean, it's like (laughs) chocolate chip cookies and banana bread have gotten me through the last year. But this is a very different banana bread, and it comes from Liberia, where you were recently. So what is it? Yeah, well, you know, I can't do anything the usual or expected way. So I took myself to Liberia to learn a very different approach to banana bread. Now, to understand this, you have to understand a little bit about the rather troubled past of Liberia. Uh, This country in West Africa, it was created in the early 1800s pretty much on a misguided notion that the growing number of freed blacks in America could be repatriated and basically sent back to Africa. Uh, As you can imagine, this did not go particularly well and caused generations of conflict 
But for our purposes, the interesting part was that obviously we know that a lot of the Southern American food traditions originated in Africa. The other part of that is that when some freed slaves were returned to West Africa, they brought some of those same food traditions back with them. And so things like jollof rice and stewed collards that actually began in Africa and became common in the American South went back with these people to West Africa and to the country that became Liberia. One of those recipes, the one that I found really fascinating, banana bread. So this is not flour. This is a rice-based bread, right? Right. You know, the thing that kind of really surprised me is that there is almost no sugar. There is almost never any wheat flour used in it. Some people add some, but most people don't. And it's vegan. There's no eggs. There's no dairy. There's no butter. It's made entirely from ground rice and bananas and not a whole lot else. Could you just describe what it looks like and what the texture is like? Because I think we think of banana bread, we're thinking about a sweet loaf that you have with a cup of coffee. This is very different. Rather than a loaf, this looks more like a cake. It's usually baked in a round cake pan, actually, sometimes lined with banana leaves, you know, to prevent sticking. And the texture, because it's made from ground rice, and some people use white, some people use brown, the texture tends to be a little granular, but in a pleasant way. It's almost like a semolina flour texture. And even though there's very little sugar, this taste is actually quite sweet because they use a tremendous amount of crushed banana. You know, it's two bunches I saw sometimes being used per loaf or cake of banana bread. And then a lot of times they'll add some ground ginger and some cinnamon, a little bit of vanilla. And the result is actually really delicious and very unexpected. I tasted it, you know, here at Milk Street a while back and I loved it. I mean, but you can't think you're eating banana bread. Exactly. Call it something else, but it was really, really good. It really is. You know, two home cooks showed me how to make it, Sharon Mulba and Yasa Cooper. And they do it old school. They have these huge mortars and pestles that they use to bash the rice to a really kind of grainy powder. And then they do the same thing with the ginger and the same thing with the bananas. And they mix it all up. And, you know, ovens, as we know them, aren't particularly common in Liberia. So they recreate kind of the surround, all-around heat of an oven by cooking over coals with a Dutch oven with coals both under and over the pot. And the result is really delicious. You get these crispy edges and this really moist and yet a kind of granular crumb that is really satisfying. I was surprised by how much I liked it because, you know, when you think of banana bread and you remove all the sugar and you remove all the eggs and, you re- you know, you take so much away, you think, well, what's left? It was actually really fantastic. So the version we would make here starts with, what, grinding rice in a food processor? Yeah, since most of us don't have these six-foot-tall pestles and, you know, three-foot-tall mortars, you know, we had to improvise a little bit. But we found that a food processor grinds the rice perfectly. You know, you rinse the rice, you soak it for a few minutes, and pretty much you put, much as in Liberia where they put everything in the mortar and just use the pestle to grind it all up, we replicate that but just by throwing everything into the food processor, and it does a great job. And the rest of it's pretty straightforward and into a cake pan. Yeah. JM, thank you. Liberian banana rice bread. It's not banana bread the way we know it. I think it's actually (laughs) much better. Thank you. Thank you.
You can get this recipe for Liberian banana rice bread at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Dan Pashman tells us why Butterfingers are the most overrated Halloween candy. We'll be right back. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability They'll have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah Molt and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is uh, Daniel from Virginia. How can we help you today? We are big fans of Milk Street's Mujadara recipe. We make it mm-hmm. with some regularity several times a month. Last week, we were making it for friends, and so I doubled the recipe. And I've actually had this happen a few times when I've doubled the recipe. After uh, you know cooking it for the allotted amount of time, 
I open up the lid and the rice and lentils are really more of a, the consistency of like a porridge. Not quite a stew, but definitely uh, way more wet than I think the dish is supposed to be. If there's some sort of secret, if you're cooking something like rice and lentils, if you double the recipe, is there something that you're supposed to do to ensure that you get the same effect as a single yeah, batch? I learned to cook mahadra in Beirut, actually, years ago. The guy cooked the lentils and rice together. Right. But I find when I make it, I cook them separately. And the reason is lentils don't always cook at the same rate. It depends how fresh they are, what type they are, and I can control the texture better. So I'll cook the rice separately. And the trick of cooking rice is to put the rice in the pot, although I use a Japanese ceramic pot, but you can use any pot you want, and then add just enough water so it covers the rice to the thickness of a finger. So that's maybe, I don't know, half an inch, something like that. It doesn't matter how much rice you're cooking. It always works. Cook the rice that way. And then the lentils, you can just cook lentils in boiling water, really. So you just boil the lentils until they're done and rinse them and then marry the two and then the caramelized onions go on top. I think cooking them together is dicey. That's what I would do. That's my quick answer. Sarah? One of the things that you said makes more sense to me than anything else because I've heard that you just shouldn't, when you're making a double batch of rice, you don't just double the water, rice all by itself because it doesn't need as much water when you double it, because some of the water gets absorbed, some of the water evaporates, and when you double it, right. it doesn't behave the same way. What's really interesting is that when I got this Donabi, this Japanese rice cooker, it's a ceramic pot that has two covers, an inside cover with two holes, an outside cover with one hole. It gave me the directions with it, and it essentially said, for a cup of rice, use a cup of water, not like a cup and a half or two. And when right. you do that in a pot, it ends up being the width or the thickness of a finger above the rice. So all these years I've been cooking rice, the back of the box will say two cups to one, right? Two water, one of rice. So I essentially cook a typical like jasmine rice, one cup of water to one cup of rice. And I think that makes a really fabulous rice. That's an interesting thing all by itself. But in this particular recipe, because of the lentils, it sounds like, especially when you're doubling it, it's smarter to do what Chris suggested and cook yeah. them separately. This dish, this guy had two young kids. It was their favorite dish. And it's just my favorite dish, too. It's easy to make, and it's just great. My uh, four-year-old and my two-year-old absolutely love it. Yeah. It's just so fantastic. It's simple but complex at the same time. You could put caramelized onions on bananas. It would taste good, <laughs> right? I mean, it's, they're so good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Daniel, thanks for calling. Yes, thanks, Daniel. Thank yeah. you so much for the help. Thanks, Pleasure. Y'all. Thanks. Bye. This is Mill Street Radio. If you need culinary inspiration, please call us. The number is 855-426-9843. One more time. 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at Mill Street Radio. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? My name is Deborah Tillison from Denver, Colorado. How can we help you? I'm looking for a good fried steak taco. So I'd like to know how to make them at home. Well, first of all, I was in L.A. in June. I spent a couple days going around with a guy called Javier Cabral eating tacos and you know, you're absolutely right. A lot of tacos, I've never seen these before. They're all from northern Mexico. They're very local. And they have all sorts of fried shells. They have some that are in the shape of cigars that are got to be almost a foot long. 
and then filled with lamb or pork with a very dark mole sauce, a very smoky sauce. And there were so many variations in that. So you're right, the fried shallot is great. You can do it in a shallow fry in a large skillet, put the tortilla in, start to fry it on one side, flip it, and just as it starts to get fried, you use a long tongs. I've done this at home. You fold it in half and hold it with the tongs so it doesn't fully close for about a minute or okay. so until it you know, hardens up. But you can do that in, in a shallow fry in a skillet and do it yourself. It's a little time-consuming. Uh, you do one at a uh, time. But you can do it in a skillet. How much okay. oil would you say, Chris? Maybe an inch of oil. And what temperature, roughly? 360. Yeah, that's what I would think. I have a candy thermometer Perfect. that I use for a lot of things like Good. that. Wear a full leather apron. No, no, no. Listen. <laughs> Welding gloves. When you fry at home, it, yeah, you really do true. have to be careful. But I, I agree with you. There's nothing better than a really... A crispy. Yeah. So good. And it's not a style you see that often. Yeah. Well, good for you. We're, yeah. we're all for that. Slightly crisp on the edges, soft on the inside. All right. There you go. Yeah. Okay, Deborah. Yeah. Deborah, thank, thank you. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. This is Milk Street Radio. Next up, it's regular contributor Dan Pashman. Dan, how are you? I'm all right, Chris. I'm uh, I'm in the mood for some candy. I'm always in the mood for candy. Yeah, yeah. you know, look, ha- Halloween's coming, and what I've learned in recent years is I feel like, you know, of course I spend a lot of time raiding my kids' candy, stealing from them. Of course. And uh, different years, I find that different candies are my favorite. And I just want to get a sense from you about which are your favorites, because um, I get some pretty strong opinions. Like, um, for instance... You know, there's two Reese's peanut butter cups, right? There's the wide, flat one that I think was the original, and then there's right. the kind of like narrow, tall one. Mm-hmm. Which one is better and why? Oh, this is this is philosophical. This is yes. deep. Oh, yeah, yes. we're we're going deep today. Would you expect anything less? Yes. I I think I like the flat one better because the process of eating it has more geometry and more choices. You can nibble around the sides first. You can just go deep with the first bite. Um, I kind of like the, the ridges, though, on the little one, the tall ridges of chocolate. Uh, I like the texture of that. Um, but the bigger one is an invitation to individuality when it comes to consuming it. I think that's the correct answer. Also, <laughs> you get more perimeter. So right. uh, you get more of that crinkly edge texture, and then you get the center bite with no crinkly edge, which is also kind of special and different. Okay. Okay. Um, three Musketeers or Milky Way? Oh, Milky Way. Why? Uh, three Musketeers just is bland in that. I think I think Milky Way has the... The rich caramel layer and the other stuff. Yeah, that's yeah, the big. They both yeah. have the soft, gooey nougat and yeah. the chocolate exterior. Right. Milky Way right. has the caramel. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I I would mostly take Milky Way for the same reason, but I think that sometimes the Three Musketeers just as a pure expression of gooey. There's something that I respect about its simplicity. It's just like it, that's a special texture. You don't get it in many foods. It can probably only be made by some sort of mass production equipment. And I just think that sometimes it is worth reveling in it. So you like to sit down to a giant marshmallow once in a while? <laughs> yeah. But it's not quite a marshmallow. It's no, not it's quite not. as sticky. It's, 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 no, okay. yeah. it's fluffy. Right, right. Um, Almond Joy or Mounds? Both have coconut and chocolate. One has almonds, one doesn't. Well, 
As I remember it, Mounds has dark chocolate. Almond Joy has lighter chocolate. Is that right? I think that's right, yes. Yeah, it's it's that dark chocolate with the coconut that sends me. I, I, I like the almonds, but no, I, I go with Mounds because it's the dark chocolate. Yeah. I would love to see them add crushed almonds. Yeah. Instead of the one whole or a couple yeah. of whole Two almonds. Because yeah. then I feel like the bites either have no almond or it's all almond. And I want I want crunchy bits throughout. No, no, no. But I, I'm going to use your philosophy. Mounds is a pure expression of, of sticky <laughs> coconut filling yeah. covered yeah. by dark chocolate. And, and the problem with the almonds is it's, it's kind of annoying. It's like another thing you have to think about. So I don't know. I, I, I'll go for mounts. The almond doesn't usually get in my way. I didn't realize that it was such an obstacle for you. It's a hurdle. <laughs> it's a hurdle. Yeah. Nestle yeah. Um, Crunch or Kit Kat? Oh, Kit Kat. Why? Uh-oh. Oh, now we have an argument. Um, I was a big fan of Nestle Crunch all through my formative Halloween years. It was my favorite thing to get in the, in the pumpkin. But Kit Kat, I don't know. Maybe it's the jingle, uh, you know, the ad. Right. Um, or maybe it's because they're miniature Kit Kat bars in the office. We have a candy jar, and those are always the things that go first. I, I just like the uh, the texture, the sandwich part of it. Yeah, the, I, wafer, I, I f- the wafer thing. I would like the Kit Kat to be more wafer forward. Yeah, I will yeah. say that I, I prefer the Nestle Crunch. That's the small bite sized ones because I think those are a little bit thicker, so they have more of a density to them. There's there's more of a depth to that crunch. That, that that's a close call. That's a close call. Most. Overrated Halloween candy. What's your vote, Chris? The the worst candy in the world is what my kids always like the most, which are those chalky, super sweet things. You talk about like Necco wafers? Yeah, Necco wafers, candy corn. I cannot stand the candy corn. Oh. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, but but it's those Necco wafer style, subs, powdery, chalky, sweet, tasteless candies. I, I don't like those. I'm actually with you. I don't like those either. For most overrated, I'm going to go with Butterfinger. Mm. I, I love peanut butter. I love chocolate. Yeah. And I love crunch. I should love it. It should be one of my favorites. But it just, it's just yeah. never as good as I think it's going to be. It kind of makes my teeth shiver. It gets all stuck in my mouth. It's a little bit monotextural. Yeah. I want it to be a little bit creamy. And it's not. Maybe that explains why I've been depressed so many years. You've just identified the problem. <laughs> Butterfinger? But yeah, my disappointment <laughs> with Butterfingers. I, I didn't realize how important that has been to me in my life. But I, I agree with you. The, the packaging, the yellow package is great. Yes. It's terrific it, package. Yeah. And it just doesn't deliver. Well, no, you know, I, think we, I think we've made some real progress here, Chris. I feel better. I feel better about <laughs> myself. Um, I feel more confident about Halloween. What's one ingredient you wish was in more Halloween candy bars? I'm a huge marshmallow fiend. I like okay. that texture, like like yeah. mochi, you know, that kind of mm. thing. I love that slightly chewy, fluffy thing. And that's why I like Easter, because you get okay. the marshmallow eggs, you know. Mm-hmm. So anything with marshmallow covered by chocolate would be high on my list. Yeah. Okay, so you're probably like a big Malamar guy. Yeah, I like Malamars. Okay. Absolutely, okay. yeah. I haven't had them in years. Now you got me now excited. You got to get some of those. Um, my vote for the thing I wish was in more candy bars: raisins. Oh no! Yes, you yes. can't be serious. Raisins provide no. a different texture that the other classic components of these candy bars. There, there's the gooey nougat. There's crunch. There's wafers. No. There's caramel. There's nuts. There's all different kinds of textures, but raisins provide another texture that you don't get from anything else, and that's why we need more raisins. It's like the fruit in the chunky bar just throws me off entirely. Yeah. Oh, you don't like it? No. 
it just you 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 hit the, what is it the dried raisin or cherry whatever's in it. Uh, you hit that right. and you go like whoa. No, I, I think you're. I think you and I were simpatico until until the raisins. Well, we knew we would get to that point eventually. So you like raisinets, those little chocolate covered things? Oh, love raisin. You don't like raisinets? Uh, oh, now you're now, now you're getting me excited. I haven't had raisinets in forever. Maybe that's what we should give away in my house at Halloween. Okay, this well year. Let, let's end this segment. I'm going to rush out get a Malamar. You get a couple of boxes of raisinets, and uh, we'll go our separate ways. I'm leaving now. Happy Halloween, Chris. Dan, thank you. <laughs> That was Dan Pashman, host of the Sporkful Food Podcast. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the latest season of our television show, or order our latest cookbook, Tuesday Night Mediterranean. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producers, Sarah Clapp and Jason Tereski. Production assistant, Amelia McGuire. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. <laughs>